Okay, uh, good morning everybody and welcome to this new Energy Chinwag podcast. We're joined today by Brian Matthews of, uh, of Durham and uh, we have John uh, John Massey and uh, we look forward to talking about current events in, in the nuclear sector. So uh, without uh, further ado, uh, good, uh, good morning. Yeah, morning Brian. Yeah, morning guys. So I, I guess... <coughs> I guess to kick off, maybe briefly introduce yourself. Obviously, a bit more than from Durham, um, <laughs> so <laughs> what's, what <laughs> would be handy. Uh, and yeah, we were going to talk about nuclear a bit today. So I guess just a few words of intro about yourself and kind of why <clears throat> why we might cover that. Yeah, morning. I'm Brian Matthews. Um, uh, I work for myself in a small company called Terra Ursa, but in my previous life, I spent most of my career working for. EZF Energy, or what was British Energy, predominantly in the nuclear sector across the UK, and in some cases, privileged enough to work around the world at a number of the nuclear plants in France, India, Germany, America, and China. And my background is predominantly operationally based, so I've spent a lot of my career uh, where I currently am, not far from Durham in Hartlepool. There's a uh, 1200 megawatt nuclear power station here, advanced gas cooled reactor. I spent the bulk of my career working there in various roles from uh, looking after safety through to being part of the outage or shutdown teams, and then being part of the team that looked at the future of nuclear in the Northeast and in the UK from a policy point of view, what were the options? And that's why I thought it'd be quite an interesting topic at the minute because there's been lots of news and noise around investment in nuclear, government interest and money into nuclear, into new nuclear technology and existing nuclear technology, different types of financial arguments around why is nuclear good, bad or indifferent, uh, and what's the, the nuclear renewable balance, I guess. Okay, and I suppose to kick off, I mean, what What's your perspective in terms of? Uh, I mean, do we do we need nuclear? Given it's it seems expensive compared to alternatives, how do you think it will mix with other things? I guess that's straight into the into the potentially <coughs> controversial stuff. I suppose it's a simple question, a simple response, isn't it? That do we need nuclear? Uh, you could answer simply yes, because right now there'd be about five gigs of gigawatts of nuclear on the grid baseline, very steady, uh, mm. providing definite, guaranteed, reliable, safe generation to the UK. So I suppose that's your start point. So mm. do we need it now? Yes. If we took that five gig off, uh, it would be probably quite comfortably replaced by gas. But with that comes a cost and comes, of course, carbon emissions. So mm. the big yeah. cost of nuclear uh, anywhere in the world is we, we call it low carbon rather than carbon free. You know, we don't, nothing's carbon free from a, a, a lifetime cost point of view, but nuclear is comparable to most of the renewable carbon figures and outputs and emissions. I'm not going to get into numbers and that because every report you read seems to vary, uh, but it's yeah. basically comparable. Uh, and you, you get to the sort of question around cost. I think the cost is it. It's wrong to say it's different. It is the same because it's still providing electricity to customers, industry, etc. Uh, but it provides different things. I think the base load benefit of nuclear is clear. 
if you look at the facts and figures of electricity generation over the last 20 years, you'll just see a thick bar on the bottom that hasn't really changed, and that's nuclear. Uh, it's always there when we need it, come rain or shine, uh, wind or no wind, etc. It's very long life. These power stations will last a long, long time. When Hinkley Point C is finished, it'll have an expected operational life of 60 years, uh, with the likelihood of that extending. Some of the plants in America now are getting licenses to run to 80 years and even potentially beyond that into 100 years of operation. So, you know, huge upfront investment, low carbon, really reliable. You know, the sort of capacity factor of nuclear is, is a different kettle of fish from anything. You know, some of the plants, the best plants in the world operate at more or less 100% uh, capacity. They're always available. Uh, the nuclear industry uses something called un uh, unavailability capable. Can't remember what's going on. Uh, <laughs> unit capability loss factor, uh, which the, the smaller the number, the better the power station. And some of the best power stations in the world run at nearly zero. Uh, always available and always on. Uh, one of the other things I think is important is that it is supported by the government. You know, the government like nuclear power, they like the the technology behind it, the reliability behind it, they like the good jobs, they like the well-paid jobs, uh, so they are investing in it. So I think the that support by government is really important. Uh, and we've seen that in the last couple of weeks uh, with quite a bit of cash pushed into the nuclear sector for the next generation of nuclear power stations. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sorry, sorry, John. I just wonder whether you could tell us a little bit more about this, uh, uh, about what the current uh, uh, situation, and certainly in the UK, is that obviously the, the whole of the Western world and beyond seems to be going to a low carbon uh, future. And from what you're saying, it seems to dovetail pretty smoothly with that. But what's the situation saying in, in the UK? You, you mentioned some support from the government. What, what, what's uh, do you know any more details on that? <clears throat> well, I suppose that the big backdrop is that the UK was the forerunner in nuclear power from 1956 through to now. We've always had nuclear generation on our grid uh, and we led that technology. Right now, there's there's eight nuclear power stations in the UK. Uh, seven of them, the old advanced gas cooled reactors, which were the, the sort of second wave after the Magnox power stations, are all planned to close, not guaranteed to close, but planned to close between now and 2030. Uh, the four older stations are planned to close between now and 2024. So the government know there's going to be a gap. Is there, I mean, could they be extended? Are there technical limitations to extending those? One of the big challenges with the advanced gas cooled reactors is there's two components that cannot be replaced, uh, the boilers and the graphite core. EDF have done some amazing work on managing both water and gas chemistry to extend the lives of both of those components. They do some unbelievable in-core and boiler inspections to make sure they are within the operating boundary and perfectly safe to do so. I'm sure most people who are interested in energy will know that the ongoing work at Hunston B power station, Hinkley Point B power station in regard to making sure everyone with the office for nuclear regulation being one of the key components to that representing the public 
is satisfied that the graphite cores at those two power stations, which is four reactors, uh, are in a safe position to operate. And as a result, Hunston B hasn't been operating much over the last few years. But we've done a huge amount of work that will not just benefit Hunston B and Ingley Point B, will also benefit the other advanced gas coal reactors as they come to the end of their lives. The likelihood is there's, they've been extended several times now. Uh, on average, all the advanced gas crew reactors have had their lives extended by nine years uh, from their original design, uh, which is not dissimilar to coal and gas plants and various other assets around the UK as we've learned to manage them in a more sort of engineering, equipment, reliability friendly manner. So the government and EDF and a number of other companies have looked at the opportunity for new nuclear in the UK. Pinky Point C is the obvious one, uh, an amazing project down in the, the southwest, biggest construction project at the time in Europe. Uh, big, big generation, you know, that these are the biggest power generation units the UK will see that each turbine is 1,650 megawatts. So 3.2 gig when both units are on uh, at full load. Uh, due to come on in the mid 2020s, uh, but that means there'll be a gap. There'll be a number of stations coming off, uh, a bit of a gap, and then a big Hinkley Point C unit coming on. Uh, we're looking at size or C uh, as a as you as the UK uh, another big investment, but we need to finance it in a different manner. And I think that's one of the big conundrums with nuclear: the upfront financing costs are incredibly high. It depends who you talk to, but you're certainly looking at the wrong side of 50% of the cost of Hinkley Point C, which is in excess of 20 billion, being financial related costs, yeah. which, which is a huge amount of money, which is not tolerable from a comparative point of view when you start looking at the levelized cost of electricity compared to offshore wind, as an example. And people do get a little bit grumpy when they look at the cost. Uh, contract for difference that Hinkley Point C got, £92.50, and with interest it probably is sitting at just above £104, yeah. which is a huge amount of money. Uh, but you get something in return of that. You, you get foreign investment in the UK to build something that the UK wasn't willing to do, uh, but we need to do something different. So one of the big things the government and EDF are looking at in particular are this regulatory asset-based financial model, which has been used in the UK for large infrastructure projects, uh, like the uh, Thames Tidal sewerage system, uh, where in essence, you get your funding from the day you start the job. Uh, so EDF will be in a position to charge the electricity bill payer when the construction chart starts rather than when the electricity starts. That's I mean, another another issue obviously with nuclear is Hinkley being a prime example is that it was due to start kind of years and years ago, wasn't it? So I guess that if you're charging people from the day of construction, but construction tends to take years more than than it's supposed to, um, that, I guess that's not going to be very popular. No, uh, and the RAM model does have that major flaw. And I think that's one of the, the contractual challenges around how do you penalise the company that doing the work linked to hitting the milestones on the plan. The big you're, putting, you're basically pushing risk 
on delays yeah. onto the public rather than the company. Yeah. yeah. And the, the argument behind doing that is moving away from the sort of first of a kind logic where the risk is higher to mm. the replication logic that size will see will be. Size will see will be a very high percentage of a replica of Hinky Point C, which is really important. You looked at the transfer from reactor one to reactor two build, the percentage in time savings and learnings were, were very high. We're in their sort of 20, 30% improvement. And there's no reason to see why that wouldn't be the case as you move to side will see, just as you do with, with any large project infrastructure here or around the world, you learn and get better, don't you? And we've seen that in offshore wind, you know. That's, I suppose one thing that thinks to mind is this week, there's been, it's been quite a bit on the news <coughs> Uh, about uh, the nuclear industry and there's been a bit of a fallout between the UK and uh, China for example over the Hawaii uh, kind of internet uh, infrastructure do you think that will have any implications for the for the nuclear sector in the UK or the nuclear sector globally I think it'll certainly have implications in the UK because without that Chinese interest and investment uh, the likelihood of big projects going ahead will be challenging because we'll, we'll have to find money elsewhere. The government have coffers that they could utilise. Uh, if you got the risk down low enough, you could end up in a position similar to certainly onshore wind where you have the large pension funds investing in them because pretty low risk, guaranteed return on investment. It's not massively high, but it's in line with expectations of pension funds. That could be another option, but it'd be something we'd have to work very hard on. The Chinese are wholly invested in a project called Bradwell, north of England, uh, north of London, uh, which that, that'll just disappear if the Chinese and ourselves fall out over whatever issues are going on in the background politically. I know the Chinese had some that's, interest. Sorry, that's, that's a different um, design, isn't it? That's not a pink. Yeah, it's, 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 their, it's their own CGN uh, Chinese design, so it will not be a European pressure war reactor. It'll be a, it'll be a, a Chinese design, uh, not dissimilar, same sort of pressure water reactor technology, uh, but a Chinese design based around the number of iterations they've done in China themselves. I think one of the big pushes is they're really keen to get it licensed in the UK because the Office of Regu Nuclear Regulation in the UK are considered the, the most stringent and highly thought of in the world. So you get the UK tick in the box for your design. Uh, many people yeah. be interested in that. Uh, the, the Chinese were interested in the Horizon Stake, which were the other company that were looking at building nuclear power stations at Anglesey, a site called Wilfer and Albury on the 7, uh, where there's an old Magnox reactor being decommissioned. Uh, so that was, that's a bond by the Hitachi group. Going back to, I mean, because obviously one of the issues with the CFD is you get this guaranteed price for huge about <coughs> huge amount of time. Uh, I mean, it goes back to the baseload thing, because one, one of the criticisms going forwards is that baseload isn't necessarily even something that that we need we need flexibility if you're going to build gazillions of gigawatts of offshore wind um, the trick is actually going to be things that can balance in and out when the wind isn't blowing so and it, I read I mean you see lots of different things about how flexible nuclear is and isn't I mean my understanding is that it can be flexible technically but the economically it's not flexible is that a kind of fair summary yeah I think 
and the CFD could enable flexibility. You know, yeah. when when I walk onto a French power station in the morning, you see their power increasing because they didn't need that load overnight. So mm. they load follow and they will follow demand. The EPR design enables that. So mm. it load follow. Uh, so that's a positive thing. The, the CFD could be a restrictor on that in the sense that, you know, the way you make money is by uh, getting as many megawatts out as physically possible. Yeah. Uh, but linked to the sort of curtailment logic that we've seen in wind recently, you could potentially maintain the CFD at full load, but change the agreement to allow load following to support ultimately grid stability is what mm. you're looking at. So you've got yeah, that you grid stability. Could, and then you could take, take away some of the curtailment payments and encourage them to do other things with yeah. um, with the excess power. Yeah, and, and I know you guys have been talking about it a lot, you know, that the, the heat that comes from a power station can be used for many things and it could be used for electrolysis of water to produce hydrogen in quite high volumes and, and that has been done around the world with nuclear power. You could use the heat for, for other industrial processes or as an extreme your point C is probably not in the perfect location for it for like industrial and domestic heating. Uh, so you could use the waste heat or the waste waste energy is the wrong term, but when we, we don't need the power, uh, push it somewhere else. Mm. Brian, John and I have been talking about these themes uh, recently and we've talked about clustering, we've talked about innovation, and we've certainly talked a lot about hydrogen. And I'm sure I read somewhere that, uh, and I was surprised to read it, that there was a, a nuclear come hydrogen it might have been around Sizewell, which you've already already mentioned. Do you know anything more about that? Well, there's actually a little project at Hesham 2, which is one of the power stations in Lancashire, which is, which is producing hydrogen uh, on site. Believe it or not, it was actually a recommissioned piece of kit from the original design. Uh, so, oh God, that would have been in the 70s and 80s in terms of Hesham 2. Uh, so it goes to show that everything just sort of comes back <laughs> All these clever people were thinking about the ages ago. You forget about it. have got a really good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're like, well, yeah. So, so there is the link between hydrogen and uh, and nuclear. Uh, it could be, it will be considered green by definition in terms of the low carbon uh, output. Uh, however, there's always a balance, isn't there, in terms of the cost? Mm -hmm. You know. If you're paying £92.50 or £104 um, per megawatt hour to make hydrogen, what does that do to the cost of hydrogen, even if it's an excess power type arrangement? And mm. I think all those maths and sums need to be done. Uh, and I think the big challenge around hydrogen is just the efficiency factor, isn't it? You know, if, you can, if people in the UK can get into the heads that the efficiency factor doesn't really matter if you've got excess power, which I think is a really important engineering conversation to have. That's fine, because then you just do it then, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think the trick would obviously be to to not pay people when they're curtailed so that you weren't paying £92 per megawatt hour. You were, it was, they were either getting paid nothing or they were using it as a source of extra revenue. And I guess also, I, I don't think that, I, I imagine the, the future ones, it'd be interesting to see what the price point the government are happy with, but it certainly won't be 92 pounds I wouldn't have thought going forwards. I don't know no. what kind of figures have been thrown around. Uh, it, they tend to be in the 60s. Mm, yeah. I mean, it, certainly when you look at, I was at a 
a small modular reactor or advanced modular reactor uh, technology, as they call now, uh, seminar a while ago and chatted to the Rolls Royce guys, and they were looking at CFDs in the region of 60 quid uh, to make sure that you know that was feasible. And that then was quite comparable to where offshore wind was tending towards. And of course, that's sort of been knocked out of the park as we head below 40 pounds. Uh, yeah, those haven't been delivered yet. <laughs> yeah, still going to be done, but but history, recent history tells us that yeah. it tends to be, you know, with the big boys like Equinor and Austers and SSE behind these, they, they tend to find a will and a way, don't they, to do it, uh, particularly over the, the life of the asset. So I think that that costing is there. And I think the grid, with the recent announcements for the stability contracts over the next six years, which a number of companies like Drax have got, to provide inertia onto the grid by demand and by costs. You know, that was about what, 320 million over the next six years, divided up between four, five or six companies. So I think the cost of that inertia needs to be factored in and other grid type support activities. But that's probably only in the region of 10 pounds a megawatt hour. So that might bring the cost down to 50 for an SMR, but that's still in excess of. And then you've got to ask yourself just around that sort of constant availability, reliability factor. What is that worth the UK PLC? Mm. Uh, that's the other, I think, the other elements. And someone needs to pull all that. And I know people have from a research point of view what that value is. I suspect as the volume of SMRs increases, that cost will significantly drop. But it won't drop at the rate of you know the the replication of offshore wind. It's, nuclear is just too technically complicated, and it was interesting. I got asked a question a, a year ago or so that you know is nuclear too safe? In in the essence of what at what cost do the extreme safety, both culture values, technology, uh, legislation, and policy actually equate to in terms of the the additional cost of nuclear mm. uh, and i think that does need to be reviewed but that the replication and duplication will make a significant difference i mean rolls royce were looking at heading towards the 50s in terms of you know both internal uk use and exportable use bringing it down significantly towards the sort of one to 1.5 billion pounds per plant which would be a remarkable effort considering I think they're looking at units between sort of 350, 500 megawatts. So they're not really small, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's the same as a CCGT now. Yeah. Well, I, I, I was going to ask about SMRs. I mean, because one, one of the criticism you do hear about things like Hinkley is that we kind of spending a fortune on a fundamentally not new technology, shouldn't we kind of just leap forward um, and head for head for next generation? So, I mean, you mentioned SMR and you, you mentioned AMR. I mean, can you just kind of give a quick summary of kind of what few, not current nuclear, but kind of upcoming yeah. or future nuclear consists of? Well, I suppose there's two bits to it. There's the SMR idea, which is around, can you build a nuclear power station in a factory, bring it to site, bolt it together, have a build time of probably less than two years, uh, and then you're up and running. That, that was the modular idea. Yeah. Uh, the big plus in the UK, of course, is we've had small modular reactors for as long as we've been sticking nuclear uh, reactors in submarines, mm. you know, which has been a long time. 
How big are they, by the way? What I mean, how many megawatts is a submarine reactor? Got the, they're not very big. They're into singular megawatts, but the the highly enriched fuel, which lasts, you know, they don't need to refuel their units or mm. replace the reactor for like thirty years. So it's it's slightly different technology, and you, you're not allowed legally to transfer that technology into the domestic market. I was going to say, say that's a, a one megawatt, thirty-year sealed unit sounds like ideal for kind of flexible power generation dotted around and, the place. And that's exactly what the government <laughs> pushed ten million quid into. So the Urenco U battery uh, is a very small uh, modular reactor, advanced modular reactor that will be about ten megawatts thermal, so about four megawatts electric. Mm. Uh, so really small. Uh, could be linked to remote islands, small towns, could be used behind the meter on industrial uh, complexes, could be used for heating and or hydrogen production. So they're very flexible units. And there's a number of similar units being developed, particularly by the Canadians. Indeed, the U battery technology is sponsored by both the UK government and the Canadian government at the minute. So that's one route the, the SMR, AMR market's mm -hmm. going very small, compact, flexible, but you can add them together to get to yeah. a demand that you want. The new scale company are developing a unit that's 60 megawatts, and then you just bolt them together, I think up to a maximum of 10 or 12. Right. So you can still get quite a large unit, you save on scales of economy, and they're probably one of the more advanced mm. uh, uh, manufacturers. Yeah, they're one of the ones I've heard of, at least. <laughs> The Department for Energy in the US have put a huge amount of money into that company to, to make it successful. If there's one new company that are going to make an SMR happen between now and 2030, I would suspect it's new scale. Mm. The Chinese and Russians have probably already got the technology available now mm. in some shape or form. Uh, certainly the Russians have been playing with, playing is the wrong term, developing uh, small modular reactors and advanced modular reactor technology for quite some time. And then you've got the sort of other designs. You've got Westinghouse and GE who are designing things called fast breed reactors. Uh, they use slightly different technologies, uh, usually sort of molten salt type cores, which from a safety point of view make life a lot easier. You know, it's it's, it's not got the risk of, of meltdown. You can, you can remove the, the core and the fuel quite quickly, easy and safely if there's an issue. Uh, they operate using recycled fuel more often than not. Uh, so the stuff that went into an advanced gas kill reactor could be reprocessed and put into these. So you've got sort of a closed cycle. And then you've got the, the sort of high temperature reactors like the PRISM reactor with GE, which is quite cool because you could use, you could, you could use fuel linked to the plutonium stockpile the UK has in that reactor. So you get rid of the plutonium risk in the UK mm. and your fuel reactor and it's low carbon. So you talk about how you balance the cost and what's the extra income, you know, getting rid of the plutonium stockpile is probably worth an awful lot of money to the UK because otherwise we're going to have to safely store it somewhere. So you've got this balance. And then the third leg of advanced modular reactors or advanced nuclear technologies is the fusion side of things. Mm. Uh, so the third company that got the money from the 40 million that was put up last week was this, the uh, spherical tokamak uh, down with UKAE in just south of Oxford. Mm. Uh, 
So that that's a small reactor, uh, again, sort of flexible load uh, that is being developed in the UK on the back of a big project called JET, uh, European Taurus and Cullen, uh, which has moved on to a massive project in the South France called ITER, which is the 500 megawatt uh, fusion project, which I think is the biggest fusion project in the in the world at the minute. The UK are part of that alongside 35 other countries. And I think they're expected, but that's that's 2035 in terms of operation. Yeah, yeah. So it's a long way away. And that's not a commercial model. The model after that demo, mm -hmm. which is heading towards 2050, that'll be the commercial model. So fusion on a larger scale, it is a big chunk of time away. You know, you're heading to the... It's the classic. It's always 30 years away quote, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's always had that. It's, I think technically just so, so complicated. Uh, mm. I mean, and amazing as a, as an, well, I did a physics degree. So as a, as a sort of ex sort of physics person, you know, the, the, the concept behind what's happening there is amazing, but you've got to balance that amazing physics experiment against the cost, haven't you? And, yeah. and it's very, 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 very expensive. Yeah, maybe that would be like, um, I don't know, when sending people to the moon, there'll be a spin-off, which would be kind of new frying pan or something will come out yeah. of it. So yeah, exactly. Some new coating or whatever, <laughs> super material. Can, can I ask Brian a question about intellectual property if the UK was to go down soon, some, some of these routes and was thinking about potential exports and companies you mentioned uh, like... Uh, Rolls-Royce, I mean, would, would they hold the intellectual property to replicate these and then then there would be a, a, a rollout that the, the, the company could benefit from? No, yeah, definitely. I think that, and that's one of the big pushes that the UK government are looking at. At the minute, it, it, it's fair to say that all the big energy companies uh, are British. You know, offshore wind is seen as a huge British success, isn't it? But actually the companies that are doing it are British. Uh, and it's the same with nuclear, you know, nuclear around the world is very complicated, well done, we started it, but we haven't designed a nuclear power station or a nuclear reactor outside the military sector for tens and tens of years. Uh, but Rolls-Royce can still do it, they still have that capability and you're seeing that stutter around the world. That, that's why most of the nuclear projects are struggling at the minute, because there was this huge gap between the nuclear sort of heyday, everything runs really smoothly, and then they go, oh, we, we forgot that these sort of things get old and then we need policy to replace them. And by the time, you know, all the guys with slide rules in the 1950s <laughs> are, now, are now all gone, you know, so we're trying to design power stations with people who have no experience in it. I think that's one of the really big challenges. The whole world, you know, the Americans are seeing the same, we're seeing the same, the French are seeing the same. Uh, you know, the Chinese are the only ones that really seem to be accelerating their both design and construction. And that was echoed with Taishan, which is the Chinese-French EPR project. Mm. And both of those units are on and running smoothly now. Uh, and they were roughly on plan, slightly overrun. Uh, but, you know, you've got a Finnish project and the French project, you know, like you can measure it in almost a decade now. Mm of overrun so i think that that's one of the really big challenges but having ip in the uk to export using our current sort of links 
be it what you want to call it, Commonwealth or otherwise, particularly in countries that are advancing in sort of technical ability, like the African African countries, you know, being able to put a small modular reactor into those sort of countries could really accelerate their technological growth because you've got guaranteed, relatively cheap power, and you don't need to invest in a massive grid system. You could have a democratized grid system using a small modular reactor, just powering a city as an example. You wouldn't need that infrastructure. Uh, it's a bit like the African skip between having no telephone straight into the mobile technology, isn't it? You know, they, they didn't need to have all the DAF cables that we've had. But, but arguably, arguably they'll, they're doing that anyway with, with solar and wind at cheaper yes. costs. I mean, they're not building big grids, they're, they're building yeah. it locally and, and connecting microgrids and then maybe ultimately connecting those together. So I guess that would be the issue. I mean, with, with things like the Chinese ones, building them quickly and on time and cheaper and so on. I mean, is that... Is that all down to expertise or are the concerns that they're, they're doing it at a lower safety threshold? I mean, that was something you mentioned earlier about cost versus risk. Yeah, I think the Chinese have an opportunity, don't they, based on, on volume of people and cost of labour, which certainly yeah. has an impact. We, we see that from, you know, the, the cups we drink and the clothes we wear, and it's no different in the nuclear sector, in truth. Mm. Uh, they, they are very, very, very capable, bright, intelligent people. Uh, able of both replicating and improving designs, which we see all the time, and uh, and, and they have. Uh, I mean, I don't know enough about the the the, the safety culture is different. Mm. When I was at Dai Bay in China, uh, you know that the default hierarchical model that they have in China is different to how the culture of any industry in the UK would work. But it still works and they still use the basic building blocks of nuclear safety culture. Mm. Everyone in the world does through an organization called the World Association of Nuclear Operators. And they do it exceptionally well. Mm. Uh, but what's interesting with nuclear power, once they're built, they run really, really well. You know, you look at recently, you've got Darlington Power Station in Ontario, not far from Toronto. That's just ran for 895 days with no issues. I mean, that's absolutely crazy, isn't that? That's a 900 megawatt unit for mm. 900 days. Uh, so, you know, the, once they're up and running, they're actually fundamentally quite easy to, to, to operate. Now, my, my ex-colleagues will probably not say that, but when, once, once they're there, you know, I, it always used to blow my mind away. I, I, every day I went into the reactor, reactor building at Hartlepool or Hesham or Torness, uh, you know, you just looked around and the technology, the systems, the engineering is is staggering in these places. They're, they're things of like engineering beauty if you're into that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and with that becomes, you know, some challenges, but they run really well when they're up and running. You know, Sizewell uh, Bay runs breaker to breaker, outage to outage, shutdown to shutdown, every time, bang, 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 bang. And the team down there do an absolutely uh, amazing job. But it's this upfront bit of getting to the start, which is really hampering nuclear power at the minute. You know, there's no one in the world that can say that all the nuclear projects currently ongoing are going well, probably except for the UAE, you know, the Baraka project out yeah. there. Yeah. Four, four big units, 1,400 megawatts, Korean That's design. Korean. It's Korean, isn't it? Yeah. yeah Korean design. You know, unit two just uh, finished, handed over to the operator. Uh, you know, 
from a project management point of view, you know, unbelievable, uh, particularly in the heat of the desert. Mm. Uh, and I've got a lot of ex-colleagues who went out there from the UK and, you know, mesmerizing effort. So again, it demonstrates it can be, it can be done well. And EDF just announced a European uh, pressure water reactor design capability yesterday. And one of the things that was mentioned in the video there was they've taken the best learning from Tai Shan, which is currently the best EPR project, and brought it into Hinkley Point C. So I think that transfer of knowledge around the world is really, really useful and good. And I think that's what that's another risk removal, isn't it, for Hinkley uh, size or C? You know, you've now it's not first of a kind. It's quite easy to say, actually, it should be. There's two at Taishan, there'd be two at Hinkley Point, you've got Flammerville, you've got Okolito and Finland. So you're almost on a sixth of a kind. Yeah, you probably wouldn't want to mention those, the last two, but most yeah. <laughs> those yeah. people, given that they, <laughs> they're the ones with massive delays and gust overruns. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, you can learn the bad bits. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and then ignore them, yeah. Yeah, don't Google them two projects. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that so so there is some scope to adjust the design even as you're even as you're constructing or at least to learn lessons into into how to construct it well, as you go along. There's a need to adjust the design based on country requirements. You know, the, yeah. the, the EPR at Hinkley Point C is is different to all the others. You know, based on design requirements, O and R interest points, etc. You know, so. The, the sort of safety and redundancy factors are different based on just UK requirements. Uh, that does come with a cost, but if you don't follow those requirements, you don't build a power station. Uh, mm. So there's just a bit of a balance. Is there, is there a feeling then that with SMRs, for example, ultimately it will just be cheaper to, to do those because you're not, then you're, I mean, the problem with most nuclear projects is they're huge and they're kind of, they're all different. Whereas with an SMR, if you can churn them out of a factory, bolt them together, <clears throat> that ultimately, even though you might lose, because there's different economies of scale, there's economies of scale in a big project, but there's, there's economies of manufacturing, of churning something out, and also smaller construction times. So is there a feeling within the industry that you'll, it's still both, you're still small and big, or, or do you think small modular ultimately could completely replace the whole idea of a $18 billion single <clears throat> 1800 megawatt turbine project? I think the, the route people will take it will end up going towards the sort of modular design concept. Mm. You look at the estimated figures for building a sort of 500 megawatt unit, which could be in the sort of singular billions. Mm. You multiply that up by six to get near Hinkley Point, you're a massive chunk cheaper straight away, aren't you? So mm. on the, the economics are there being smaller units that be more flexible. Uh, and I think one of the big challenges the UK has is what do you do with natural gas CCGTs? Something mm. needs to replace those pieces of kit. And you really only have a, a small number of options. You either somehow get a huge volume of hydrogen and do a conversion, like some of the Europeans are doing. I think Siemens is doing a project in Holland at the minute, mm. uh, yeah. which would be brilliant to see. Uh, you either somehow develop long-term storage capability beyond the current battery limits or you use something like a small modular reactor in its place so you decarbonize that small flexible sector Brian, for the for the small reactors are, are the um, siting requirements the same as for the for the larger 
Okay. Do you need uh, to be by a seashore, for example, or are you free from those kind of constraints? No. The, well, the, with nuclear, slightly different. So you have to have a nuclear site license to start with. Uh, so that is uh, awarded by the Office for Nuclear Regulation for any nuclear site. Uh, there's a couple of things you can do with that. It would be much easier to build small Roger reactors at existing nuclear sites. You know. The license exists and probably would just need to be changed rather than renewed. You've got a level of public acceptance in the area, which is really important with nuclear. Uh, you've got a grid connection, people are doing it. You will be close to a cooling source of some description, though many of the small modular reactors are sort of enclosed cooling. So it's either air or small amounts of water. It doesn't pull in huge amounts of seawater like all the larger scale units do but there's a level of uh, ability to potentially use facilities at existing sites. You know, I was part of a team looking at the possibility of new nuclear at Hartlepool, and I certainly hope it's still ongoing. You know, you've got the grid connection. Hartlepool Council love it because, you know, you get good uh, business tax revenue from it. Uh, it employs people with really good wages. There's basics of office buildings already there car parking, and you've got a water source if you need it. And then you've got loads of people who are used to working in a nuclear power station, might not be the same technology, but they have the same safety culture elements that you need. So as a start point, you would build the SMRs at existing nuclear sites, in my opinion, uh, if the sort of grid would balance that way. And the way the grid's developed at the minute is most of the big nukes are at uh, grid endpoints are really important from an inertia point of view. Uh, so I wouldn't see any particular reason not to do that initially. That gets you through the first of a kind problem, gets you through everything up and running, and then you can start thinking about uh, maybe looking at licensing options to make it quicker and easier if you want to put one, you know, near Leeds or near Birmingham uh, that isn't particularly near any of the, the nuclear sites based on either grid demand, just expected population or industrial increases, etc. Yeah, well, if you could replace a gas power station, you've got a brownfield site and a grid connection, so yeah, I mean, exactly. that, that would be handy. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, sorry. Go. No, no, go for it. What was I going to ask then? Um, so in terms of things like the Rolls-Royce, for example, I mean, you meant, we mentioned fusions of always 30 years away, but how, I mean, realistically, when, when a Rolls-Royce looking to have commercial units available. I mean, I guess it's partly dependent on someone ordering a bunch of them so that they can yeah. set up manufacturing. So at the minute, they are looking at first of a kind 2030. Okay. So not not far off. Yeah. Uh, lots to do in the interim. Uh, new scale are looking at 2025. Mm -hmm. So in essence, in the next 10 years, there should be a commercially available that if you have enough money and a want, you could ring someone up and get a small modular or an advanced modular reactor. So that's the sort of timescale we're looking at. It does leave the UK with a bit of a problem, this sort of a big chunk of nuclear closing in the next five years. That gap could see an increase in carbon emissions associated with just having to use the current CCGT fleet. Mm. You know, there's a huge level of capacity. I think there's about 30 gig of CCGT capacity in the UK mm. uh, for obvious reasons, but that that will be called upon during the, these periods. You know, 
because you won't flatten the curve of wind and solar in the next 10 years. No. Uh, I think you will eventually, without a shadow of a doubt, uh, but there's a, there's a really big problem mid-2020s uh, for the UK around, you, you know, just no technology, which is low carbon, to quickly fill the gap. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. So, and, um, so you've got Hinkley, Sizewell, that's just gone into planning, hasn't it? Or at least with the national, whatever yeah. they call it, national infrastructure bunch. And so when's that, when would that get approved and start, if it all goes well? Well, I think, from what I gather, it's wholly associated with the regularly asset-based model agreement. Without that, I think it'd be a very challenging project to do. That RAB model was supposed to be associated with the energy white paper. I'm sure you both know has been pushed back into probably mid next year. Mm. Uh, that's, that's probably too late. So it might need a separate piece of policy or legislation to enable that RAB model to go ahead out with the energy white paper. Uh, so I think they're the sort of timescales you're looking at sort of fit financial investment decision over the next probably 24 months, uh, which could be really good timing in terms of elements of work finishing at Hinkley Point C and a mobile workforce able to then move across the country to replicate and continue because it's, you know, it's still fresh in the heads in terms of what they've done. Uh, moving over to Sizewell uh, to start that project. Uh, but again, there's probably going to be a bit of downtime in the middle where people are finished at one project and the other one hasn't quite started yet. Uh, so but you, you'd be heading towards the 2030s in, in terms of Sizewell C being up and running if you had a following wind from now. Yeah, so none of, this, none of this stuff's quick, yeah. No, and, and that's one of the really big problems with nuclear. It, just, it, it takes a long time from sort of public inquiry, planning permission, environmental consents, the owner licensing both of the design and then of the site, and then the design and then the build, uh, even though you can do the design and build in parallel, and that will obviously be reduced because of Hinkley uh, Point C uh, as well. And that's one of the reasons EDF invested in this EPR design uh, company through a company called Advance in Bristol uh, to enable that to be more successful. But well, ultimately, they won't exist if size or C doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. there, yeah. has been, okay. there has been a little bit of noise around EDF and one of the many many energy hubs uh, now in the northwest. So this is one of the more side hubs, this clean energy hub that was announced a couple of weeks ago. And EDF are part of that through the northwest nuclear arc, uh, with a potential there to take what was the new gen site, which was going to build a different type of reactor called the Westinghouse AP1000, uh, and put potentially another one or two EPRs up there to fulfill the government target of, I think it was between 13 and 16 gigawatts of new nuclear on a large scale between now and 2030. Okay, so, there, so there's, um, yeah, because we're, I mean, we're familiar with targets in wind and, and so on, but so nuclear, there's a, there is a definite, there's a published kind of target capacity by a certain date, is that? Yeah, I, th I, th I think targets probably, uh, <laughs> Slightly brave. I think let's call it ambition. 
Ambition, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true of all of them. They're, they're always far enough out that they don't have to worry about whether it's met or not, and they'll be retired by then, or in the House of Lords or whatever they're, they're doing at that point. <laughs> the ultimate ambition was to have three gigawatt sites at Hinkley Point C, Sizewell C, Wilfer and Angle C, the Moorside site with New Gen, and potentially Albury and potentially uh, Bradwell. That was that was the aim. Okay, that was the pipeline. Yeah, that was across three companies, which was EDF, Horizon backed by Hitachi, and then New Gen backed by Toshiba. Uh, right. Sort of three, three, three main aims. Uh, are the Japanese companies still players? Yeah, yeah, they are. It's they've obviously had a very, very tough time uh, over the last ten years in their nuclear industry, but it, it is coming back up. Uh, as they've done many modifications post Fukushima, uh, but yeah, they still Toshiba and Hitachi still have both IP, and they want to continue along that route. However, it is very, very challenging for them, and there's not many new builds using any of their technology. I think Vogel, which is an AP1000 in America, is one of the few projects that's currently ongoing and will be successful and finished. Uh, well, there isn't many. There is an AP1000 in China, I think. Uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's not been a good few years. But Kepco and the Russians, so the Koreans and the Russians, are doing very well exporting their technology. You know. Yeah, I was going to ask about the Korean one because in the UAE, given what you said, I mean, it would it would seem remiss not to at least look at them for um, if you're looking at projects here as well. Yeah. The, the, They've had conversations. I know uh, one of the, I think, a previous foreign minister did go to uh, Korea post new gen failing to look at the ability of Kepco to come in. Mm. Uh, but for one reason or another, that negotiation fails. But they certainly have ambitions because the South Korean nuclear politics isn't great over there at the minute. So they're not going to be significantly investing in new nuclear in South Korea itself. So to keep the company afloat and their big link to uh, Doosan, who you know do a lot of work in the UK on a number of sites, and I think have just moved into some of the hydrogen work on there uh, in Scotland. Uh, they need to export their capability. The UAE was the, was the first, and I know they're looking at a number of other sites and into Africa. But there would it would be an opportunity for them to come in, and I think politically our relationship with the South Koreans is in a much stronger position than the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Did, um, well. did, I, did I read about a Russian floating nuclear kind of facility? Is that a bit of a false memory? I'm sure that I read that they had some. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some... It's like a strange dream, uh, but no, it's, it's, it's true. Yeah, so they have they basically have a large nuclear well not large nuclear quite small nuclear reactor by power terms on a boat uh, that you can then sail around the world and plug in uh, in essence to a city and provide power or a naval base or an industrial hub or whatever so they do have that and they're looking at orders the chinese are also developing a similar thing so these they were looking already, at already the seabed as well weren't they I'm sure I. I'm sure they were looking at putting them on the seabed as well. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, there's been lots of interesting stories. Yeah, I'm sure that one came up a couple, about a year or so ago. But anyway, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. They're into science fiction right now. Yeah. <laughs> the Russians are fully supportive of nuclear and probably yeah. more so than any nation outside China uh, in mm -hmm. the world. And they have the broadest selection of nuclear technology in their country, you know. So we talk about developing fast breed reactors. They are operating fast breed reactors now, you know, so that they, they have done really well through uh, Rosatom, their sort of state company, uh, both internally and now exporting, particularly to, you know, old allies like the Turkish, for example. Mm. Uh, the Pakistani, uh, are, uh, they, they're, they're working with the Russians. So, you know, there's lots of people exporting technology, but the Russians are doing really well at it. Yes, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those industries where you kind of think well, it'll be the politics as much as the technology and the finance even. I mean, the politics and the finance go together, especially if you're talking about state funding, which effectively effectively we are. Um, so, yeah, they, those two sort of seem to go together, don't they? Do the Russians produce their own fuel? Have they got their own uranium? Yes, they do. We, in, in fact, we, we use uh, size, well, as one of the other big pluses of nuclear power stations. There's a lot of power stations in food size will be uh, that use reprocessed nuclear weapons uh, within their fuel mix. Mm. So as part of the sort of proliferation treaty and then the reduction of nuclear weapons around the world, one of the easiest ways to use the nuclear weapons up in a safe uh, manner is to then reprocess them into fuel. Mm -hmm. There's an agreement with the French and the Russians to develop the fuel and then put it into their reactors. And I think the Americans are doing something similar as well. So there's a big plus to, to you know, being able to use that sort of fuel in, uh, in reactors now and in the future. You know, you could remove all nuclear weapons from the world if, if you wanted through nuclear power stations and producing mm -hmm. carbon electricity, which is pretty cool, isn't it? You know, yeah, as you say, it's a cost um, that you'd otherwise have to... <clears throat> have to deal yeah. with or a yeah. big hole in the ground you'd have to shield them in yeah, yeah. same even with the plutonium stocks in the prism reactor design hmm. okay interesting stuff i've gone through i think i've gone through we've gone for an hour so <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very very thorough session we we thank you for that uh, uh brian i mean there's been an awful lot of uh, of, of info, information and and, and uh, insight in the last hour what we, we often do is we often invite um, our guests to come back in perhaps a few months' time and see whether there have been any developments, have a review, have things panned out, as uh, as we might expect, what's happening on the policy side, never to be forgotten, how things are happening on the low-carbon side, because uh, there does seem to be a good interaction between renewables uh, with their low-carbon uh, arguments and, and the nuclear fraternity with, with similar kind of arguments out there. Yeah, no, it's been... It's been a useful, useful session. I mean, on nuclear, it's, it's often very hard to. I mean, you, it tends to be very polarised. Um, <laughs> people either hate it or they love it. Um, so it's nice to delve into some of the questions and so on about it. I was going to ask also. I mean, you, you mentioned your current company. What what are you doing currently? Uh, so yeah, I left uh, EDF to start and look at sort of energy consultancy, climate change consultancy myself. So I've set up a company called Terra Ursa. Uh, and at the minute, I'm working with people like Northern Gas Networks uh, and a number of councils around the UK, primarily looking at climate change. Mm. Oh, I can support them with my knowledge from a policy point of view, but I'm closely linked to Durham University and the Durham Energy Institute. Mm -hmm. I think you probably know a few of the members. Yeah, yeah. 
Ben Sykes, who's one of yeah. the senior guys and Oste is one of the yeah. board members of this. So uh, bringing them in, particularly from a, I'm focusing a lot on geothermal heat. Okay, yeah. One of the projects that we're currently looking at uh, through Nottinghamshire Council, we should find out in the next week or so if we've been successful, is uh, extraction of heat through flooded coal mines underneath mm. towns using, you know, in essence, using ground source heat technology yeah, yeah. and the district heating methodology. Yeah. But also, what are the finance models behind that? Mm. So, how would you charge every household? Could you do something where you store heat in sort of uh, when electricity prices are low and then extract the heat when electricity prices are high, etc.? So this sort of it's called fifth generation heating and cooling systems, which are smart, demand side response uh, capable, potentially even inter-community trading uh, available where you could you know you can trade with your neighbour to say I'll switch my uh, Eating off for half an hour if you do, but you're going to pay me three pound fifty. Well, mind, mind suggest that would make an interesting chin wagon its own. Yeah, right? That's yeah. yeah well, I've got some. I'm very lucky. I've I, I work with a, a lady called Charlotte Adams at the Coal Authority, who uh, has done some amazing research into this, and now is looking at the commercialisation. And I think maybe a chat with her and myself, but particularly her around the work that they're doing in the northeast. Mm. There's a project just up the road from me, which I think is over a thousand houses, which will be heated from a district heating point of view using flooded mine yeah. water extraction. Okay, yeah, sounds good. All right, I think we'll draw it to a close for today, though. So thanks for thanks for coming on. Thank it's you. nice to spend that hour. And um, yeah, I think I'm I'm done, Charlie. Anything else to add? <laughs> Otherwise, for all, for all the audience, I'll speak to you next time. Yeah, so yeah. Th thank you very much indeed. Th thanks, Brian. Yeah, Cheers. Okay, bye everyone.